2: Hello, I'm Rob Attar, and this is the first History Extra podcast for
3: September 2012. Here's what we have in store for you this week. The casualties consisted of one man shot in a rude but unimportant part of his anatomy. That was Tim Bembo on the 1942 Battle for Madagascar. They
1: were forced into a passive role by these events, but they were very far from passive women.
2: And that was Sarah Gristwood talking about the Wars of the Roses. This podcast is brought to you from the team behind BBC History magazine, which is Britain's best-selling history magazine. You can find the magazine in all good news agents and on subscription. Plus we have a Kindle edition available on the Amazon website and an iPad edition on the Apple newsstand. You can find out more details of all of that, plus great subscription deals, at our website, which is historyextra.com. If you have any comments about the podcast, or any of our other products, you can get in touch with us through email, podcast at historyextra.com, Twitter, twitter twitter.com forward slash historyextra, or Facebook, facebook facebook.com forward slash historyextra. In May 1942, one of the lesser known operations of the Second World War took place, the Battle for Madagascar. Concerned about an Axis power seizing the French colony, Britain launched a bold amphibious raid on the island, hoping to keep it out of enemy hands. Tim Bembo, a historian at King's College London, has written about the battle in our September issue, and he spoke to us a little while back about the attacks on Madagascar and the dangers of fighting a country with which Britain wasn't at war. At the start of the war, who was governing Madagascar? Uh,
3: France. Uh, It was part of the uh, extensive uh, French Empire, which was, albeit not quite as big as the British Empire. Uh, still uh, considerable um, in various parts of the world.
2: Obviously France had been invaded quite early in the war and then Vichy came over. Did Vichy France then continue to
3: run Madagascar? When France fell, uh, the bulk of France uh, came under the control of, of the Vichy government, named after the town in the south of France where they were based. And they had a an unusual position in that they were nominally in control of their territory and their overseas colonies, but obviously very subject to French influence. So most of the colonial governors around the world remained loyal to, to Vichy. Uh, some of them um, did go over to General de Gaulle and his, his free French who, who joined the Allies, but most of their colonies, including Madagascar, uh, stayed with Vichy.
2: And did Vichy
3: rule in Madagascar differ from how the French had previously governed it? Not really. Um, Things went on pretty much as before. The concern for the British wasn't so much what Vichy were doing with it, but rather what Germany or Italy or later on Japan might do with it.
2: Madagascar's in quite a good strategic location. What was the British fear about that?
3: Yeah, I mean, as you say, it was the strategic location. British strategy depended on our ability to use the sea to send troops, supplies, reinforcements around the world, as well as to bring in the imports that we needed for our own war effort. For much of the war, the Mediterranean was too dangerous uh, to send convoys through because of the German and Italian forces on the north and south shore of it. So British shipping had to go around the south coast uh, of Africa. Madagascar's position just off the east coast of southern Africa meant that if substantial enemy naval or air forces were stationed there, they threatened to prevent Britain from using um, this sea route. Uh, Effectively, if there were significant forces stationed there, this could literally unravel Britain's entire strategy. So even though the chance of it happening wasn't great, the implications of it did were so serious that they had to think about ways to deal with it.
2: And do we know whether any of the Axis powers had seriously
3: considered garrisoning Madagascar in that way? There are the occasional intelligence reports that something might be afoot. Um, I think it was not as realistic a prospect um, as some feared. I mean, early on, the the, the initial concern was uh, that Germany or Italy could base submarines or um, raiding ships there. Um, But, you know, a brief glance at the map would suggest that that was going to be formidably difficult, not least with with the Royal Navy around the world. So, when France started to fall... um, the initial assessments were that, okay, yeah, there's a potential risk here, but it's it's tiny. Um, we needn't do anything about it other than having plans to to contain that threat if it emerges. So, I think they were quite realistic about the, the German and Italian threat. That could be put to one side. The, the greater concern came later when Japan started to loom um, as more of a threat. They seemed to have more capability to uh, act against Madagascar. And there were occasional intelligence reports that Germany were, were urging them to do so, they might have uh, an interest in stationing uh, ships or aircraft there. Again, initially, the chiefs of staff didn't think this was very realistic. They thought Japan's concerns were further away. But once Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, they revised this opinion. Um, they realized that actually the you know Japanese are very capable of conceiving some quite ambitious operations and executing them. Again, as they started to advance across the um, the Pacific, even into the Indian Ocean, uh, this raised the concern still further.
2: And at what point did the British government decide that they would have to try and capture Madagascar?
3: Well, there, there are various plans that were drawn up um, as early as uh, 1940, but they were never a, a big priority. Uh, it really stepped up a gear in the early part of 1942, I think as Japan was advancing seemingly unstoppably, the concern was that um, if Britain was pushed out of Ceylon, uh, we could need Madagascar as a base, or alternatively, um, there could be a Japanese attempt to take Madagascar, in which case it was sensible to uh, preempt this. Uh, now, obviously, some of the chiefs of staff were less, uh, less concerned about this as a threat, but certainly, I think that was the way that, uh, that, that Churchill saw it. And so was it the spring of 1942 that they finally decided this would have to happen? Yeah, uh, March 1942, they finally decided to go ahead with it. Um, But uh, they were helped because they already had some fairly impressive, well-constructed plans that had been put together earlier. They could dust these off and um, put them into, uh, into action now that they decided that there was enough of a concern for it to be worthwhile taking action.
2: What challenges did they face
3: in mounting this operation? I think first and foremost, the big problem was finding the resources for it. Um, I think this is why the invasion of Madagascar is is, is a good case for for strategy in wartime. Uh, There are lots of things you might wish to do, but you only have limited resources. So you have to be ruthless with, with priorities. So while there were the naval, the air, the land forces to do this operation, they had plenty of other calls on their time. And this was one of the reasons why um, Brooke, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, was opposed to the operation all the way along. He, he thought the forces involved should go directly to India to reinforce it against Japan. That was a far more pressing call on our forces than, than, than Madagascar. So I think the first problem was, was allocating the resources that was, were, were needed elsewhere. Obviously, the way to get around that was to, to plan a, a quick operation. I think the second um, difficulty was the, the distances involved, um, you know, considerable distance for, for, from the UK. Uh, third, I think the, the inherent complexity of, of amphibious operations, time and again in war they've proved to be very difficult. Um, I suppose the, the Gallipoli campaign of, of uh, World War One, in which again Churchill had quite a lot of involvement, is an indication of that. And to some extent, I think the capabilities for amphibious warfare had been allowed to to decline. Uh, and some of the experiences earlier in the war weren't very happy ones. Uh, the Norway expedition, for example, um, arranged at short notice. Uh, scratch British-French force um, sent up and really um, uh, not hugely successful. So, I think the, the inherent difficulties of, of, of amphibious operations, of uh, putting forces ashore and supporting them with, with the air power, the fire support they needed at such a difference, were quite formidable challenges. However, it was, it was important to get this right because clearly... Uh, the British, the Allied strategy, was going to require a very well-developed amphibious warfare uh, capability later in the war. And so what
2: was the British plan to capture the island?
3: Well, the first thing they did was to decide they didn't need to take the whole island. They could just concentrate the attack on Diego Suarez, uh, which is uh, the port in the uh, north of the of the, the island. Um, it has a very good natural harbour. It has an airfield. The argument was: if we can take, if we take and hold that, that will be sufficient. The rest of the island we can either leave or take later on, um, as needs dictate and as forces are available. So I think that was the, that was the first important decision: only take uh, Diego Suarez, making it more achievable. The big complication, of course, was that we were fighting against Vichy France, which was a country we weren't at war with. I think when, when people, when you think about uh, a campaign in World War II, it's easy to think it's just going to be, you know, uh, you've got a clear enemy, go, go against them with, with maximum firepower. But with Vichy France, we were not actually at war with them. So, first of all, we didn't want to provoke them into declaring war with us. Um, the, the, the Vichy government was collaborating with Germany, but they were holding back in some areas. There were things they could do that would make their position more difficult. So, we didn't want to provoke them. Secondly, We didn't want to be killing French service personnel, an entirely reasonable concern. So so how do you deal with this when you're uh, fighting a country that you're not quite at war with? Uh, The the other concern was to make sure that it was going to be a quick campaign. What we cannot afford is to have the forces tied down there for an extended period because they're they're needed elsewhere. So the concern about French casualties and the concern to avoid a prolonged commitment both point in the same direction. A smart plan that can use surprise to achieve success by collapsing the enemy resistance. You're not going to destroy their forces, you're going to disorganise them, shatter their cohesion. When they looked at Diego Suarez, the obvious approach was through the main channel on the east coast of the island that that gave good access to the harbour. Now, this was obvious to us, it was equally obvious to the French, and it had very strong defences, lots of um, very well-sighted gun batteries on high ground really dominating that channel. An intelligence report said it's, it's impregnable f- from that direction. So the planners, if uh, like, they looked elsewhere on the map, uh, and they realised that Diego Suarez is on the east coast of a fairly narrow strip of land. If they landed on the west of the island, they could then advance across land uh, a few miles and attack the main defences from behind the west coast of the island was less well defended by the French, so it was attractive to land there. But, of course, the reason it was less well defended was because it was seen as very difficult to get to, that the channel was narrow, it was rocky, there were uncertain tides. Um, the, the French believed it was impossible to attack through there. In fact, the, the gun batteries that they had defending the west coast, their written instructions were, do not even bother practicing firing at night because you can't navigate this channel at night. So the plan was to land on the west coast where the landing would be unexpected then very quickly push in from there to attack the defenses from behind this would mean you could collapse french resistance very quickly which would mean fewer casualties for them and a shorter commitment for our forces so that was the plan um what actually happened in reality did it work it actually worked pretty well the uh, the landing on the West Coast went absolutely according to plan. Um, they were helped by a special operations executive yacht that um, drew them into the opening of the channel. Um, they managed to get off the landing beaches on time without losing any ships. Um, and, and every beach was was hit in the right place at the right time, which uh, coming through the, the channel they did was, it was a remarkable achievement. And they achieved complete surprise. Um, as I, I think I said in the article, what, the the French personnel at one of the gun batteries, uh, they were all captured asleep in bed except the sentry who was captured in the kitchen making a cup of coffee. I don't think you could get much more (laughs) effective sign of achieving surprise than that. So that worked very well. What they then did, which was equally important, was they exploited that surprise. Uh, In other amphibious operations, it's quite easy to, to get a landing to get surprise and then to somehow lose that momentum. So first of all, they started... They pushed the the advance very quickly, secondly, they used the the fleet air arm aircraft operating from the two aircraft carriers involved to attack the French air force at the air base um, and knock it out in its hangars um, on the runway first thing, so from the very outset, they were able to exploit surprise to gain air superiority, which gave them a huge advantage for the rest of the campaign, so that aspect of it worked very well. Uh, They've landed, they've established themselves ashore, they've got air superiority, uh, various French ships and submarines in the harbour have been knocked out, and they started pushing the advance um, across land. Now, obviously, as you'll so often see in military operations, things that start off well don't keep going that way. You'll start coming into problems. You'll start getting uh, friction, uh, as the military call it. Um, They got through... the, The British forces successfully took a series of defensive positions. Then they came up across a line of, of forts, um, concrete emplacements, gun positions that they hadn't expected. It, it turned out that the aerial reconnaissance photos that had been taken shot, stopped just short of these defences. So the advance became held up there. This was partly because of a decision that had been taken back in London. Again, bearing in mind the importance of avoiding French casualties. London had ordered the commanders of the operation to get a captured French officer and send him into the town with a demand for surrender, which they did. Now, um, unfortunately, he was a a fairly uh, alert enterprising fellow, and he pointed out to his superiors that the attack was coming from the direction they weren't expecting. So they were able to man uh, these defences. One of the British commanders said this was an example of a classic era of mixing politics and strategy. But frankly, for London, you, you couldn't separate the two. So I think that that didn't help. So the operation became held up. At this defensive position. Uh, they tried a dawn attack on the second day. That didn't work. They, they thought they'd taken heavy losses. One unit went out of contact and they, um, London thought it'd been wiped out. And it seemed to them for a while that they were facing really the sort of the nightmare scenario of getting bogged down into a prolonged operation that would tie these forces that were needed elsewhere. So how did they overcome this resistance in the end? Well, the commanding officer of the land forces, who was a major general from the Royal Marines, decided to do two things. First of all, to get his brigades on land to do a a night attack against this French position. But in order to increase the effect of that, he decided to do another amphibious landing. Um, And this really was one of the more, I suppose, uh, colourful, unusual aspects of the the operation. Um, They got what the Admiral referred to as an expendable destroyer. They got 50 Royal Marines from uh, the battleship Ramillies that was part of the task force. Uh, and they put them on this destroyer. The idea was that it would run the gauntlet past these French guns in the hope of not getting sunk, land the Marines in the town to create a diversion. Um, the, the admiral thought the ship was going to be lost. Uh, they thought at best half Of these marines would survive. In fact, they were told that um, when the ship is sunk, not if, when the ship is sunk, try and swim for the North Shore, because if you swim to the South and are captured by the French, they will probably hang you. So, they they didn't have high hopes for this, but the idea was, to be blunt, even if the ship was sunk, even if this um, landing was a failure, it might distract the French defenders, as as they put it, it'll it'll take their eye off the ball, uh, turn as many guns possible facing South to face North. So um, HMS Anthony um, steamed past the French guns, managed to land the Marines in the town, um, and they did a, a phenomenally good job of creating a disturbance. They captured the artillery barracks. They uh, captured the, the naval headquarters, um, made an awful lot of noise, uh, and uh, it had the desired effect. When the night attack went in against the main French defences, they thought they were being attacked from behind as well as in front, their morale was also weaker than was realised because of the, the previous attacks um, and the, the resistance collapsed. So the, the key thing was the combination of that night attack, but also this uh, Royal Marine landing in the town. Uh, Churchill um, was, was delighted by it. He called it a daring stroke, a brilliant diversion. I think that's what helped to, to unlock the defences after the initial setback. And did those Marines actually survive the attack? Um, well, one of the reports says, um, their casu- uh, I'm, I'm quoting here, their casualties consisted of one man shot in a rude but unimportant part of his anatomy. Right. Which I'm assuming he was shot in the backside. Um, that, that was all the casualties they took. So they, they um, yeah, the, the Admiral's fears weren't realised about their, uh, their prospects for survival. And what were the casualties overall of the operation? Overall, Britain lost uh, just over 100 killed. About uh, 280 wounded. Um, they lost a minesweeper clearing the minefield um, and uh, seven aircraft. The French lost a few more. About uh, uh, French lost 150 killed, about 500 wounded, um, plus uh, three submarines, a couple of small warships, and 17 aircraft. So lighter casualties than in some World War II operations, but still, from today's in, in, in today's terms, um, you know, fairly fairly bloody.
2: As you said, this was lighter casualties than in other operations.
3: Did that mean that the reaction from Vichy France wasn't as severe as it might have been? There were concerns about how Vichy might react. I mean, the the assumption was that the forces on the island would resist to the utmost. Uh, It would have been easy to make the assumption that they'll just give up, but the sensible planning assumption was that they'll resist as hard as they could, and they did. They they fought um, pretty effectively. The broader concern for the planners in London was how the Vichy government might react. Um, Would they um, take action against Britain Um, previously when Britain had tried to capture Dakar from them? The the French response had been to to bomb Gibraltar. Um, Now, I mean, the the suspicion of the British was that they they hadn't tried too hard um, and not a great deal of damage was was done. But there, there was a concern they could take action of that sort. They could increase cooperation with the Germans. In fact, Um, some of the others on the British side were a bit more relaxed about the Vichy reaction, because unlike in the 1940 case with Dakar, by the time of the Madagascar operation in 1942, the United States was in the war. Um, And I think they were fairly confident that Vichy wouldn't take any action to alienate the United States. So in practice, it didn't have any serious consequences. It did have a... Uh, consequences with Britain's relationship with General de Gaulle. There was a slight wobble there because um, the Daco operation had been done in cooperation with the Free French. With Madagascar, the British government took the decision that it wasn't going to involve the Free French or consult them or even inform them. Um, General de Gaulle first heard about the operation, which after all was on French territory that he'd consider his. Uh, He first heard of the operation when a journalist rang him early in the morning to ask for a quote. And as you can imagine, he wasn't best pleased. But again, I think he realised where his interests lay and that, uh, as I said, that only proved a a brief wobble in the relationship. was there any response from the Axis powers to this? There wasn't a great deal that they could do. Um, As I said, realistically, I don't think there were any serious plans uh, on the part of the Axis powers to to act against Madagascar. I think that their concerns were elsewhere, so um, it wasn't very important from, from their perspective. Clearly
2: this attack came not that long before some much larger amphibious landings in Italy and, and in northern France. Do you think lessons from Madagascar were then fed through to those operations?
3: Absolutely. There's, there's um, plenty of evidence that some lessons from earlier on in the war were applied at Madagascar, um, including, interestingly, some some observations from what they thought Japan was doing with amphibious operations uh, in terms of um, ensuring surprise, in terms of um, rapid action and so on. There's a lot of evidence that the lessons taken from Madagascar were applied in the torch landings in North Africa, then uh, in 1943 in Sicily um, and Italy and, and thereafter. Some of the lessons were confirming ideas that were already circulating. So there'd been the idea of creating the what's called the LST, the landing ship tank, uh, essentially a, a vessel that could carry a tank across an ocean and land it on a beach. At Madagascar, they had an improvised uh, test ship to, to try out the concept, and it worked well enough to show that this was a viable idea. And the LST became an absolutely fundamental part of, of later amphibious operations. Madagascar also confirmed the need for um, a headquarters ship to deal with all the communications, all the signalling of, of operations. I think the other lesson from Madagascar, it showed the importance of uh, carrier-borne air power. You know, how, how do you conduct a, an amphibious operation when you haven't got land bases that can support the operation? Madagas- the Madagascar operation showed that they could take on and defeat a land-based air force and they could support an amphibious campaign until you get your aircraft your land-based aircraft established ashore and again this proved very important in in the mediterranean um later on
2: do you think the reason why we should be interested in this operation
3: is because of what it then taught us for later operations i think that's one big part of it Uh, it was a it was a very important step in the learning curve of amphibious warfare um during uh, the second world war Um, it not everything went right I mean, there were a few mistakes made. There were several areas where lessons were taken, where there were shortcomings. But enough of the big things went sufficiently right for it to work. And that, in turn, fed into an improved performance later on. So it's very important in terms of this broad trend of improved capability for amphibious warfare. There are other reasons it's important as well. Uh, Not least, I think, as as an example of the dilemmas for strategy, the the disagreements that could be seen between Churchill um, and Allenbrook, for example.
2: After the British captured um, this northern part of Madagascar did they then
3: go on and take the rest of the island? Yeah they did uh, later in the year in uh, in September uh, 1942 there was a, a coordinated series of advances on land with more um, amphibious landings down the coast um, a succession of operations that overall was titled Operation Streamline Jane um, and they they took the rest of the island.
2: And then I presume it, it remained in British hands until the end of the war?
3: Yeah and then it was yes it did and then it was um, handed back to the French um, as had been agreed with uh, General de Gaulle.
2: And then after that it remained a French colony until independence? Yes that's right. So do you think looking back that, that it was worth doing
3: do you think it was the right decision to try and take the island? It's difficult to judge these things in retrospect at the time the view was that there's a considerable potential threat here and by undertaking a reasonably small-scale operation, we can preempt what would be a strategic disaster. So from that point of view, it was sensible. However, the other view would be there wasn't enough of a threat, it was a diversion. And this was very much a live debate at the time. Um, There was a big difference of opinion between Churchill and his chiefs of staff. Uh, Churchill always wanted positive action, wanted to seize the initiative, wanted to take the offensive. He he had his eye on the big picture. He wanted to ensure public morale at home was buoyed up after a a series of defeats. He wanted something good to show um, the British public. He also had a very keen eye on the reaction of the Americans, wanting to show that Britain is, is worth supporting. On the other hand, the chiefs of staff had to have the more practical focus on the on conducting the operations, on dealing with the difficulties involved, of finding the resources, um, of of prioritising resources. So, I think on one hand, they found Churchill slightly exasperating. They felt that he didn't always have enough concern for, for the realities of the situation. On the other hand, Churchill, I think, got a bit impatient with the Chiefs of Staff always saying no to him. Alan Brooke, the Chief of the Imperial General Staff, was... He really wasn't a fan of the Madaga- Madagascar operation. In his diaries, he describes it as full of, he describes it as full of complications. He says, it's, it's a reasonable gamble not to undertake this operation. I don't think the operation is worth it. We have little to gain. Um, Churchill, though, in these wonderful quotes that he, he seemed to produce so often said, uh, we must not lose our faculty to dare, especially in dark days. So, on the one hand, you have his, his vision, his aggressive spirit, seizing the initiative. On the other, you have the more practical concerns, the chief of staff. And it's not the case that one was right and one was wrong. Um, you'd need both of them. And I think, particularly as, as the war went on, this partnership really matured. Um, and that's why Churchill and Alan Brooke together made the uh, formidable team that they did. That was Tim Bembo
2: of King's College London. You can read his piece on the battle for Madagascar in our September issue, which is still on sale in print and on the Kindle and iPad. Also, in this issue, you'll find articles on the Vikings, the Home Front, and German nudism, among other topics. Before the next interview, here's a quick reminder about a couple of lectures we're putting on at the British Academy in London over the next couple of months. On Thursday, the 20th of September, Tracy Borman and Mark Morris will be discussing the Norman Conquest. Then, on Thursday the 18th of October, Lawrence Rees and Ashley Jackson will be considering two Second World War leaders, Hitler and Churchill. On both of these occasions, you'll have the chance to meet the speakers afterwards and to purchase signed copies of their books. You can still get tickets for both talks. Visit historyextra.com forward slash lectures for more details and to buy tickets. And if you subscribe to the magazine, you'll save £5 on the ticket price. In the September issue of BBC History magazine, Historian and author Sarah Griswood examines seven women who she believes helped shape the 15th century conflict, the Wars of the Roses. The magazine section editor, Charlotte Hodgman, caught up with Sarah to find out more about these intriguing women.
0: Perhaps you could begin by giving a brief summary of what happened during the Wars of the Roses, some of the key
1: players involved. Right. Because, of course, the Wars of the Roses, it's one of those things we've all heard of them and we've all kind of thought, let's not go there. It's <laughs> just too complicated. And indeed, historians don't really agree on exactly when they started or when they stopped. But because right through the 15th century, of course, there were sort of two rival houses mm. with, with interest for the throne. But most of us, I think, would say that basically they began in 1455 and went on, ended in 1485 with the Battle of Bosworth, which, of course, brought the Tudor dynasty to the throne.
0: And, and so who, who were the key players in the, the conflict?
1: OK, well, the two houses, of course, as we all know, courtesy Shakespeare, York and Lancaster. But, of course, the truth is it was never that simple. Mm-hmm. What this was was a, a big massively interconnected group of people with a whole series of rivalries and battle going on. But the key players, well, when the wars was begun, the man on the throne was Henry VI, mm-hmm. who was a king troubled by a number of different sorts of inability to, to govern the country in quite the way that, that it might have needed. His wife Margaret of Anjou was really was one of the key players in getting the wars underway, for better or worse. And Margaret is one of the heroines of my book. Um, She herself had a strong rivalry uh, and enmity with the House of York, particularly Richard, Duke of York, Mm -hmm. and his wife, Cecily Neville. And of course, it was their sons who came to the throne as Edward IV and then as Richard III. So they're they're some of the key players. We all know the name of Warwick the Kingmaker, father indeed to another one of my my heroines, Anne Neville. Uh, But all these people, they came, they went, they were executed, they fell in battle, and indeed they shifted their alliances. I mean, Warwick is the most notable example there, starting out, you know, as totally very much on the York side, um, but then when he, he wasn 't getting what he wanted from that regime, striking up a very unlikely alliance with the dispossessed Margaret of Anjou, so things didn 't stay clear that thing i think that 's one of the most important things to realize mm-hmm. that it 's not We were kind of brought up to think of this neat two party divide York. Lancaster white rose red rose but in truth it was never that clear it was more like the kind of politics we need today mm. you know queasy coalitions that aren't altogether working out alliances that change marriages in every sense of expediency
0: okay and what was the role of women in warfare at this point
1: well the war the role the role of women in the actual warfare the quick answer should you know should be They didn't have any. Mm -hmm. Camp followers, of course, went along, you know, behind the armies. But ladies weren't actually expected to have any role in the battle, except this was, of course, the century of Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. Margaret of Anjou had a grandmother, Yolanda of Aragon, who was not only one of Joan of Arc's main protectors, but it was said that she herself donned silver armour to fight the you know, lead mm. her troops against against the English. And indeed, Margaret, Margaret of Anjou, Marguerite, is very often recorded as being around the battles. Um, and her name was sort of constantly invoked. It's something actually that the writers at the time and Shakespeare made a certain amount of play with, you know, sort of very mockingly, mm. she's spoken of as Captain Margaret, you know, why should we be afraid when a woman's the general? Of course, she wasn't really a general. But there's an element of truth in there. But in a way I think what really interested me was exactly the fact that these women were completely I mean completely overthrown their lives could be altered utterly by the outcome of a battle and yet they weren't they weren't allowed to be there they weren't allowed to take any part it may even have been days before they actually really ha- had word of what had happened. They were forced into a passive role by these events, but they were very far from passive women.
0: Okay. And your feature details some of the women um, who you feel shaped the wars of the Roses. Who, in your opinion, was the most important?
1: I think... For shaping the Wars of the Roses, it has to be Margaret of Anjou. Mm. Because she was the one who really did play, you know, her energies, her determinations, misguided or otherwise, did play a huge part in kicking the whole thing Mm. off. And time and again, she took a a very active role. Most of the others operated through their menfolk, as it were. Um, Women were very important in ending the Wars of the Roses, the allegiance between Margaret Beaufort, Henry VII's mother, and uh, Elizabeth Woodville, uh, mother to Elizabeth of York, you know, making the marriage between them—that in a sense is what really ended the wars. But that was more a kind of quieter, more past, more more traditional sort of role.
0: So would you say it's Margaret who you admire in the <laughs> I think
1: there's two I admire, and oddly, I think it, it's two of the Margarets. Mm. Um, Margaret of Anjou, yes, I do, I do admire. Uh, she was, she was often. Blamed and vilified. I mean, you know, she's called her the the she wolf, the you know, tiger's heart wrapped in a woman's hide. But in some ways, she was only responding to to, to the situation in which she found herself, mm. and she did so with huge energy and determination. The other one I actually admire in a completely different way is Margaret of Burgundy, okay. um, who really only plays a role, you know, towards the very end mm. of the wars. Uh, or, in the you know, even in the reign of Henry VII. But I think she's the one you'd like to be stuck on a desert island with. <laughs> you know, with any of the others, it would have been pretty unbearable. OK.
0: Why so little known about the stories of these women, though?
1: Mm. Well, there is a problem with the late 15th century as a whole, the sources. It's a truism among historians that even, you know, for, even for years, even centuries earlier and certainly for quite a short time later, the Tudor age, we've got much more information. Mm. So in general, there is a bit of a problem. And there's particularly the problem that almost because of the, you know, the situation, the Civil War, almost everyone who was writing and recording was doing it from one side or the other. So there's a whole question of, you know, propaganda and and legend. But that doesn't altogether explain why we don't know more about the women, because they do have such amazing stories. You know, you do feel we absolutely should know about them. And I think that's because a lot of the sources of information, you know, after all, it's laws. Women didn't pass any laws. It's battles. The women, by and large, didn't fight in the battles. So really, there really isn't a huge amount of the kind of personal letters surviving for these royal, royal women that we get, or oh, even only, you know, a few decades mm. later with Henry VIII's wives. We haven't got that. So we have the huge frustration of knowing that, for example, Cecily Neville had to watch one of her sons, Edward IV, order the execution of another, Clarence. And a third son, Richard III, suspected of having murdered her grandsons. And yet the letters that would tell us what she felt about it are not there. Very
0: frustrating. Very
1: frustrating. And so I think in some ways there's been a kind of hands-off, we can't quite cope. Mm. And And that's a pity because the stories are extraordinary.
0: Is that what interested you in this topic? Is that yes. why you decided to research?
1: Yes, that absolutely is. Mm. You know, I couldn't believe that there were such amazing tales, mm. and yet most of us knew so little about them. Mm. And I couldn't quite bear to just leave it at the records of battles and, you know, battles and laws, mm. not try to fight. see if, see what we could piece together. Yeah. How would powerful and strong
0: women such as Margaret of Anjou and Mm. Cecily Neville have been viewed at the time?
1: That's, in a way, one of the um, $64,000 questions about the period, Margaret of Anjou particularly. It was kind of okay with Cecily Neville because she was operating through her husband or her sons as backup, which was by and large acceptable. You know, a medieval lady might, well, hold the castle Mm. while her husband was away or a woman might even, you know, exercise government on behalf of an infant son. But Margaret of Anjou stepped over an invisible line. It was true that when she sent letters, oh, for example, to the City of London, you know, warning them to kind of abandon any allegiance to York and open their gates, uh, she did so in the name of her husband, you know, or of or, or her little son. Uh, but But there wasn't much doubt. Contemporaries spoke about how she was, you know, a strong woman, a manly woman, as they put it, used to ruling and not being ruled, how she wanted to have the whole government of the land. And that was seen as stepping over an indefinable boundary. Mm. Um, It it, it kind of it was sort of acceptable, though, in fact, England didn't have much successful recent precedent for a woman to exercise temporary power power on a man's behalf but it really was felt that Margaret wanted to go that vital mm. unacceptable step further
0: that actually leads to my next question actually is whether any of these women were seeking power for themselves or whether they were acting on behalf of mm. folk.
1: Mm. that that in a way that that, that is an interesting question um, because they almost all had to act through, or, or at least to appear to act through their folk, And indeed, that is in many ways true. I mean, Henry Seventh, Henry Tudor, came to the throne, well, right of battle, you know, he'd won Bosworth, uh, the right of his wife, the woman he was about to marry, Elizabeth of York, uh, though he played that down, but also, of course, through his inheritance, his bloodline from John of Gaunt. But that came through his mother who was living and yet it never seems to have occurred to anybody that Margaret Beaufort, and God knows she was a strong enough woman, Mm. but it never seems to have occurred even to her to try and claim that power for Mm. herself. And yet, of course, the amazing thing is it's only in the next century. It's Margaret Beaufort's granddaughters, Mary Tudor and Elizabeth Tudor, It, it, it's very interesting how much had changed, how fast. It's such a short amount of time. Mm.
0: And do you think historians are right to dismiss Elizabeth Woodville, um, who was the wife of Edward the mm. IV, um, as merely a shallow woman?
1: No, I don't altogether. Um, I can see where it's coming from because, as so often, there are some questions about her behaviour. After, I mean, the, the, when, when she married, when she made this very controversial love match with Edward IV. You know, everyone tut-tutted. Many of the older nobility objected to the way her relations, you know, all came to positions of power. So there's a bit of sort of reputation for cupidity there. And then after her husband died, she went into sanctuary with her daughters, with her younger son. But she allowed her younger son to come out and, you know, into the custody of Richard III, and as we know, the princes in the Tower then disappeared. And yet, nonetheless, there she was in sanctuary with her daughters, but still, some months later, she allowed her daughters to come out and to feature her in Richard's court. Mm. And everyone, I think, has kind of said why. And there has been almost a popular assumption that she must have been just, you know, so venal, so stupid. Mm. Um, in fact, of course, A, she had very few other choices, and there may have been all sorts of other things going on behind the scenes.
0: Yeah. Do you think um, some of our views of these women have been shaped shaped by Shakespeare mm. in these plays?
1: Yes, absolutely. Not least because that's really everything that an awful lot of people know about them. And, of course, you know, Shakespeare's perceptions always do stick with mm-hmm. you, and they're you know, amazingly riveting. But nonetheless, he does, of course. Why shouldn't he mm-hmm. play with history to a huge degree? I mean, you know, the fa- most famous example is probably Richard Third, yeah. where he has, you know, he has Lady Anne, Anne Neville, lamenting her dead, you know, one husband... Um, Richard III wooing her, you know, over the very sort of beers of her her, her her, dead husband and her father-in-law. And, of course, that's not how it happened. Not you know, The timescale is, is massively out. Mm-hmm. And Margaret of Anjou comes back as a kind of vengeful ghost to curse everybody, you know, whereas, in fact, she'd long since gone into French exile and died. Um, but the perceptions, yes, they have influenced. Because the whole thing about... Uh, Fictional writing, if you like, dramatic or prose fiction. And indeed, I I heard Philippa Gregory speak about this once in a talk about her novels about the Women of the Wars of the Roses. Fiction or drama can't really, it can't have footnotes. It Mm -hmm. can't have on the one hand, but on the other. So Shakespeare's perceptions come down hard and strong one way Mm. uh, and then That has to be it, really. Of course, there's a a million subtleties within it and, you know, the wonderful lines of poetry and so on. But but I think in some ways for the women, it is a shame that those are the only perceptions that have stayed with us because although they do them justice in one way, they don't necessarily cover all the motives.
0: And which of the women do you think has the most unanswered questions? Which are you most curious Ah, about still?
1: Oh, that's interesting. Um... No doubt at all, actually, it's Cecily Neville for me. Of the, I write about seven women on the Mm. whole. Now, Margaret of Anjou, we do know quite a bit, you know, reigning queen. Margaret of, Margaret Beaufort, we know also a good deal because, you know, by the reign of her, her son, Henry Tudor, records were getting better. Mm. Then there's the two Margaret of, Margaret of Burgundy also, and the two Elizabeths. So that leaves the two Neville women, Anne Neville and Cecily Neville. Now, I can sort of resign myself to not knowing that much about Anne Neville, you know, and she does come over as being a fairly passive character. But Cecily, proud sis, as she was called. First of all, there were the allegations, the rumours, or later rumours, that um, she'd had an affair with an archer called Blaybourne and that, you know, Edward IV wasn't even the Duke of York's son. There's the question of where she did stand and what role she took in the whole Clarence thing there's the even bigger question of whether she played an active part in her son Richard's takeover of the throne and if so why mm. and with her there's no doubt she was a forceful character I mean you know a high spending, proud, famously beautiful, mm. active. When her son, when her young son Edward IV first came to the throne, you know, it, it was her. He told, and he had to march off to battle. He told the burghers of London, you know, that m- my mother will give you the orders, basically. Mm. So she was anything but a cipher. And yet there is so little we know. She's the one where I'm just just burning for someone to find an undiscovered (laughs) cache of papers somewhere. I don't think it's going to happen, unfortunately. But if one could sort of step back and have a five-minute conversation, she'd be. be the one.
2: That was Sarah Griswood talking to Charlotte Hodgman. Sarah's book, Blood Sisters, The Women Behind the Wars of the Roses, is published now by Harper Press. And as I mentioned, you can read her article in our September issue. And that's about it for this week's episode. We shall be back next time to discuss disability in history and to find out why merchants may have been responsible for the recent global economic crisis. And in the meantime, do keep an eye on our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find blogs, quizzes, galleries and a whole lot more. Plus don't forget you can find our Kindle and iPad editions on the Amazon website and the Apple newsstand respectively. The History Extra weekly podcast is recorded in Bristol and it's produced by Dave Gibson.